Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On tonight's podcast, I have Artsy Marxist. She is a revolutionary artist that began painting at a really early age and began commissioning her first artworks at the age of 16 while also working several other jobs. She studied Chinese language while living in China for two years after struggling with poverty and homelessness in the United States for over a decade. Artsy identifies as a communist and she tries to incorporate working class themes in her artwork. She is an anti-capitalist that thinks a better world is possible. And she creates oil and acrylic paintings in a combination of realist, surrealist, and impressionist styles. And now, here we go. Marxist, a revolutionary, and an oil and acrylic painter. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So let's get into the hard questions. What? When did you start uh, identifying yourself as? Let's go with artsy first, and then we'll have to go with Marxist second. When? How long have you been artsy? What, what's kind of your background? Well, uh, I've been uh, an artist ever since I could hold a pencil or brush, according to my mother. <laughs> uh, she uh, made all that available to me because she's an artist herself. And um, I started drawing like pretty much immediately. Uh, yeah, but the name Artsy Marxist was actually something a friend called me randomly one day. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And then it caught on. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. You have quite the following. Oh, yeah. I have awesome comrades that are really wonderful. And, you know, yeah. What more can I say that they're wonderful? And, you know, uh, I'm lucky to have them. That's for sure. How long have you been a Marxist? Um, I'm going to say about three to four years. Uh, I was raised in an environment where it was unheard of to be Marxist. So it took me a very long time of like researching, reading, a um, couple years living in China, like a lot of time to even figure out that Marxism existed and then learn enough about it to call myself one. But here we are. So let's, let's table the political talk for a little bit because I'm sure um, we got a lot there. I kind of want to get into your background though. So your mom was an artist, and then maybe can you talk about, so you started with drawing, and what other forms have you dabbled in, and it seems like um, painting, that's um, that's kind of your your main squeeze, in, at least in terms of the uh, art, artistic expression, would you agree with all that? Yeah, um, so uh, I've been painting since, actually one of my first memories is painting uh, when I was three, 
I um, just always really found it like I love to draw as well, but um, I found it to be kind of slow. <laughs> uh, so I used drawing more for practice. And then when I wanted to really create an image to like bring about a certain emotion or express myself, I always felt like painting was a really good way to do that. Um, so uh, I'm sorry, I'm already forgetting what your question was. Can you remind me? <laughs> Well, yeah. You're, so you're, let's just talk about your background in art. Your, your mom right. was an artist, so um, she kind of gave you your formal training. And I think you had talked about even saying you failed out of art school at one time. So can you go kind of th- maybe through your timeline of uh, art and the different forms that you've experimented with and, you know, maybe some of the formal training or maybe your influences? Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, like I said, painting from a very young age, trying from a very young age. My mom uh, didn't so much as train me as she made stuff available to me. She had, uh, she's a mural artist um, and an oil painter. So she would just let me dabble in her um, paints that she had. And when I got older, like around eight or so, she started giving me uh, any acrylic paint colors she didn't use, which she uses really nice paint. So <laughs> this was a great way to learn. Um, on top of that, I have uh, ADHD and autism, and I uh, didn't know at the time. I didn't know until around the same time I became a Marxist. Um, but I knew that I could not focus in school but wanted to do well. Uh, but I, I could not for the life of me pay attention to a teacher talking for eight hours a day. I couldn't even pay attention for a single hour, but I had to. So I found that if I would draw at the same time, I could listen to the teacher. I could take notes without, cause my hands were occupied. I was physically doing something. So it would allow my mind to stay focused enough on the teacher to get through lessons and such. Um, teachers hated this. They like constantly tried to get me to stop drawing. I had a, a teacher in sixth grade take me aside and tell me that I was going to go nowhere drawing would get me nowhere. I needed to stop because only losers become artists. Uh, She was like so mean that I started crying uh, in the hallway when she took me aside. But I knew that if I didn't do this, I was not going to be able to pass these classes and school was important to me. Um, So I just ignored them and and, uh, kept doing it. Um, There was another time in high school uh, in an AP course that I was taking that I recall the class actually intervened because a teacher was harassing me about drawing and making fun of me in front of the whole class. Uh, and I, I would always just like sit at the back, didn't like to talk to people. I just would try to focus and get through the day. And the, yeah, the class actually had to step up and, and like call this teacher out and tell him to, to leave me alone because it was just like unnecessary. But that was like the treatment I got all throughout school from most teachers. I had a couple uh, art teachers um, throughout school that were actually supportive of what I was trying to do and would work with me and, you know, let me take my own direction with stuff. But even most art teachers were pretty hostile towards me because I just, obviously I was communicating differently, focusing differently and everything because I had undiagnosed autism and ADHD. So, um, yeah. So, uh, as a result of this, I was drawing for literally about eight hours a day, five days a week. Um, what kind, and, of, kind of things were you drawing? 
Um, I really liked to draw animals. I really liked to draw uh, dragons. I really liked to draw uh, like fantasy creatures. I like have always been really interested in video games. So I would draw like I would create like video video game like beasts to fight and things like oh, that. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I was just like you know kind of just doodling imaginatively and like i found it to be paper pen and paper pencil yeah. yeah yeah a lot of times i would be doodling on the sides of my notes which was something that really irked teachers they were like oh these need this needs to be like perfectly clean notes or whatever and i'm like i don't understand why that is a thing <laughs> they're my notes like I think the pictures are helpful you know but um but yeah so once I got out of uh uh let me see here the public school that I went to because I just it wasn't working I went to a technically still public school but it was like focused around environmental science and that was in 10th and or 11th and 12th grade excuse me were you uh, educated uh, in the united states are you okay with talking about that is that is that where you got yep, your i'm educated in the united states yeah. um and at this uh, school there was an art teacher who was super supportive of me like taking my own direction with artistic projects and stuff and that was where i really like started to create my own paintings my own acrylic oil paintings uh pencil drawings that were actually like done instead of just doodles so um that was really cool and i really still appreciate that teacher for like listening to me and just letting me like do what i needed to do you know um the like going back a little bit i had been doing mural artists or mural paintings throughout this entire time assisting my mom so uh she needed help with big projects i don't know if you're familiar with mural painting but you have to go up and down a ladder like dozens of times in a day it's very hard on your entire body and so um my mom was having trouble getting some of these projects done on her own. And so she started recruiting me to help her when I was about 10 and then started paying me as like a full employee when I was 12 because she saw that I was good enough to be doing this. So, but that was really the only place that I was like creating full fledged paintings. Um, it wasn't until this art teacher at the end of my schooling, like actually listened to me and such that I was able to try it on my own. Uh, and I did not go to college for art. I didn't really see the point because I felt that I already had what it took to create murals professionally at that time. At that point, I'd been doing mural uh, work with my mom professionally for, what, six years um, so I didn't feel that I would benefit from art school, especially considering how art teachers had treated me and how they tried to like railroad every single project into what they wanted instead of what I wanted. But I did take art courses. Um, I only, tr I only took two because guess what? As soon as I got into those programs, those, those art classes, I, I had another art teacher that was horrible. <laughs> she was, she was so bad. I like... Yeah. Um, and I was like, you know what? This isn't for me. I am going to just focus on my studies, learn Chinese. That's what I was there for. And then I'll do art on my own outside because I think my qualifications will will speak for themselves. Let's talk about that. I, I want to get back yeah. maybe to the murals. Um, but let's talk yeah. about like qualifications, credentials, 
formal training. Um, yeah. Is that a prerequisite to be an artist, do you think? No, no, you do not need somebody else to put a rubber stamp on whatever you're doing and tell you it's good or not. Like that's for you to figure out and for you to develop. I think there are special cases maybe, you know, where if you're not exposed to art at all before you go to college, then maybe, but like I've seen the sort of, um, the sort of things they ask you to provide to get into an art school and it all feels railroaded to me. And to me, you have to develop your style on your own and the chances of running into teachers that support you in doing that seem to be pretty low. Like I'm sure there's people out out there that have had totally different experiences than me. They might disagree, but from my experience, like three quarters of art teachers are trying to make you do what their version of art is. And that's not appropriate. They're not there to support your development. So I think you're better doing that on your own if you're able, of course. So <laughs> I, I, I do I definitely want to talk. We got a lot to talk about that we talked on like pre-call and stuff, but I want to get to the educational system. I want to talk more about art and the philosophy of art. But just when you're talking there, um, I was starting to think about uh, with my experience in university, um, going through like a science-based education, and we're in these labs with like hundreds of people. And we, we get these little like lab notebooks and they're giving us like a, I don't know, some sort of measured out um, substance, uh, chemical compound, and we're supposed to, you know, I guess, mix them together or, you know, how it goes in, in, in uh, labs. And it's just like kind of a, uh, a, a paint by numbers or like a cookie cutter approach. And I just think it's so silly. That's not at all how science works. You know, you're not, you're not hand fed these um, different numbers and, you know, and it's just you're supposed to get this reaction that never works in these lab books and you're always off a little bit by a few numbers. And I feel like there's a lot of similarities with like trying to teach people how to become scientists. And it sounds like trying to teach people how to become artists. I think what kind of what you were saying is maybe, you know, you kind of have to find your own path. And I think that's kind of the same way for science. You can't just like learn to be a scientist or, you know, you can't learn like uh, some new area of expertise by going through these like kind of paint by numbers lab manuals and training sessions. Like that's not how anything in the world works. That's not how science works. That's not how art works. You know, that's not how history works. You know, I just, uh, yeah, I just think, I think in general, it, you know, the, the education system, uh, there's a lot of issues with it, I think in, in America, not to, not to mention the hundreds of thousands of dollars that, um, you know, students are coming out of school with debt now, um, you know, and uh, I think that works as a uh, that works as a disciplinary method, you know, because if you go to art school and come out with two hundred thousand dollars of debt or one hundred thousand dollars of debt, uh, you can't work on a passion project or whether whatever, you know, whatever training or education or route you go, uh, you know, unlikely you're going to be able to work on a passion project. You're probably going to have to get a job at a, at a corporation or Maybe even have to give up your passion to, to find something, you know, um, you know, more lucrative. But, yeah, I think that's – I see a lot of similarities with my background and kind of your uh, art education because, like, I, I definitely felt lost. Like, you know, you go, go to university and take a bunch of different classes and, you know, over time I'm like, I, I really don't know which route I want to go, you know, kind of find, kind of find yourself lost. And then eventually, you know, you, you take a path, but – I think the, the education system should be about, you know, training people to think creatively, ask challenging questions, um, inspire curiosity. And 
a love and thirst for knowledge or learning or maybe creativity with creating art, not some, you know, standardized approach, standardized tests, um, you know, cookie cutter um, approach to, you know, paint by numbers art or maybe, you know, a paint by numbers scientific experiment. Um, do you, you kind of see what I'm trying to get at? Do you, do you kind of feel like we're on the same page here? Oh, yeah, I uh, I definitely agree with you. I think, uh, like, I remember one project they had us do was emulating a famous painting. So we were literally just supposed to copy um, somebody else's work and copy it as exact as possible. And I was like, this, this makes literally no sense. I have zero interest in yeah, painting something that somebody else painted. Um, I don't know why... I wouldn't just explore my own style. And that's another thing. They're not supportive in you figuring out what your style even is. They're trying to usually push their style on you, not allow you to develop that yourself. So, yeah, I think, you know, I can't speak for science, but it sounds similar where uh, you just are basically told to robotically, like, reproduce content instead of developing creatively and i think that's a huge detriment and i know of a lot of friends who were interested in art growing up who left it because they were so like disillusioned with how they were treated by art teachers and the projects they were doing they just like stopped and that fucking breaks my heart sorry i hope it's okay to swear <laughs> but, i'm trying to keep a clean rating so uh well, oh, okay good. no you can drop uh, it bombs. it's all but good. it's all good it does it very much breaks my heart to um to see people that could have created incredible art just lose their desire to create completely because of the education system that's a crime and you know i really wish uh it could be different so what do you think about public education versus like private education and maybe a greater question is should education be for everyone or just you know a certain sector of the population maybe the elite or those that maybe demonstrate some talent for it you know what i mean yeah, I think public education is supposed to be good, but like anything under capitalism, it's for profit, which is a mistake. So uh, profit should not be a factor in healthcare. It shouldn't be a factor in schooling. It literally, what what having a system that's for profit does is forces everyone to just think about making money in the next quarter. It doesn't allow anybody to think long-term. But in order for people to be, you know, to lack the critical thinking skills required to adhere to a capitalist system in which they, you know, just keep creating content mindlessly, you can't educate them very well. So our public education system is left to rot. The absolute worst people become teachers in a lot of cases because the ones that care about changing it for the better are forced out. I've had two friends that also have had to leave the public education system due to racism and gaping problems with it. You know, it's just, it's never going to happen under capitalism. But yeah, I don't believe that public education in itself is bad because under socialism, it can be good, very good if the workers are able to run it. So oh, that's, what, that's what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, I, I oppose uh, hierarchy and systems of domination and like, Here's my thought, okay, for education, like I know a lot of the mainstream media, um, it seems like they oppose 
the democratic influence of students, parents, um, you know, just kind of like, just from a, I don't watch too much mainstream media, but they, it's, they seem to make it sound like a problem when students and parents want to have a say on the curriculum. And I think that's awesome. I think that that's what it should be about. I think that students should have a say in what they learn. I think that the parents uh, of those students should have a say as well. Uh, I think the teachers should have a say. I don't think that the education nor the curriculum should be dictated by, you know, elites, whether it's at the state level or at the district level. I think that there should be some democratic participation in the people that are educating the students and in the people that are learning from those educators and potentially even the parents. I think that obviously that um, everyone, you know, it, it can't. At the end of the day, you know, that someone has to kind of develop, I guess, the, 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 what, what these students are learning and, and whatnot. But I think that there should definitely be a say and not just, okay, you're in 10th grade. Now we're going to learn about whatever, the Civil War or uh, Reconstruction, you know, that sort of thing. And, oh, and now we're going to get to, uh, you know, 11th grade. This is going to be our Civil Rights era, you know. Or I mean, I, I think that uh, – and I can remember this experience too where um, – We'll, we'll get to like some in, uh, in, in school, just the public education, not even talking university, but like in elementary or even middle school or high school, getting to like an interesting part of the lecture and asking some questions and getting a good discussion um, and getting off topic a little bit, you know, and, and maybe asking questions that the teacher wasn't prepared for or, um, you know, didn't have too much to do with the lesson plan, but they were interesting questions and and there are things that people cared about and, oh, we, we, sorry, we have to move on. Like, we have to get to this today. Uh, we're already behind two lessons. Like, who cares? Like, you know, like, what, what does it matter if we get to what's in the little rule book or what's in the curriculum development plan? Um, I, I think it's just so silly how it's, how it's structured. And I, and I do think that, um, again, yeah, I think a lot of people should have a say in the local community about what's learned in that school, uh, you know, especially American history. I mean, you know, the things that, that were taught and the, just the indoctrination and stuff like that and how they just kind of gloss over America's violent labor history. Like, you know, the history of America is the history of class struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I'm more in a middle ground where I do think there are certain things that should be mandated by a socialist state that kids need to learn by a certain age, like how to read, I don't know, things like that. But I also agree with you that people in the community should have a say. Um, because I've, I, you know, I've been in a school where that was the case, where there was more flexibility around what we learned. Uh, and it was, it was amazing. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful. Flexibility. And I love that word. I love that word. Flexibility. Yeah, the the way that uh, they did everything was um, they met the state qualifications, but in their own way. So, like, they eliminated all uh, tests. Instead, they would have a graded discussion, and you would sit, and they would go by your discussion and what you brought up. It didn't you didn't have to say a lot, just enough that they could. Uh, tell that you read the material and that was that and I love that and they would let you choose between that and an essay and uh, 
you know, I thought that was wonderful. If you needed help with the essay, the teacher would literally stay early or late for you to one-on-one help you with that. You know, that's something you don't get in public school or like the big public schools, I should say, because this place was still technically public. Um, But these schools are few and far in between in the United States. Generally, if you want anything like that, you have to vet a bunch of private schools and like that's not going to be accessible to the vast majority of the population so like in my ideal society i think there would be like the normal schools that would be like 40 percent like quote-unquote normal and then 60 percent of the schools should be specialty public schools where if you're you know your kid is interested in art and that's what they want to do they think they want to do then they can go to a school that's kind of centered around that because the kid's going to learn better too right like if they're not doing classes that they hate every day (laughs) it's definitely gonna help and it so happened that i loved environmental science i loved it so i thought it was so much more interesting to have an english class where we were literally out in the woods studying uh oh god what did they have us doing they had us learn to read a compass out in the woods uh you know in case we would ever get lost which is really important in the northern united states where it snows a lot and more at that time than it does now yeah yeah (laughs) but you still do need to know like how to navigate if you're caught in a snowstorm or something like that like so they would have us learn to use this compass and then have us write a paper on it or a poem on it something like that uh i found that way more interesting than just sitting in a dreary classroom, uh, having the teacher choose the book, and then you have to read it and then take a multiple choice test. Like, I I was so sick of that. So I do think, yeah, I do think there's so much room for growth there. It's insane. So I I stopped myself. Uh, Can I tell you something, artsy Marxist? Sure. We are going to disagree, I think, a lot on maybe when we get to the political system. You said something about a uh, centralized socialist state and maybe maybe a, uh, you know how the curriculum was developed and the, the certain standards, which I'm okay with. I think that there needs to be. But, ooh, centralized state, that just makes my blood boil. I, uh, I don't know if we talked about my political philosophy, but I'm a uh, anarcho-syndicalist or maybe even anarcho-communism. Those two ideas sound interesting to me. And I think when you really – Look at them. They're just interesting ideas. I don't think it's possible for anyone to develop, you know, the perfect society. But uh, I've had some Marxists on this program, and we always seem to be uh, a little bit of butting heads as it relates to, uh, I think it's the unstoppable force and the immovable object. If I'm the immovable object, I like decentralization, flexibility, and it seems like the Marxists tend to like that authoritative, centralized, centrally managed maybe powerful state, what say you? This is, this is just the prequel before we kind of really get into the political stuff. What say you about that stuff? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I'm not looking to debate tonight, so oh, I just want to put good. that on your radar. It's all good. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, in terms of, I, I think a lot of people don't really know what it means to live in a society that is a dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, like, it's a little confusing when you say centralized state because who's it centralized to the working class. So like it's really in some ways less centralized than 
say the United States, which is a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Yep. Um, I've lived in China. That's what forms my opinion there. I went to China not as a communist. I went there as someone who is completely clueless, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm so and, clueless. I'm so clueless. So it's all yeah, I, I was being told by everybody around me that I was moving to like this fascist state. And so I was expecting this to be horrible, but I was like determined to learn Chinese. So I was thinking that I was just going to stay there for three months and then come back and I could grin and bear it throughout that time. It was nothing like that. It was very free, the most free I've ever lived in my entire life. Uh, I lived above a police station, you know, I'd wave down to them. They're very friendly. They don't arrest people randomly. It was just, it was fine, you know? And I liked it so much. I stayed there for two years. Did, did the police um, kill anyone while they were sleeping? Did they break into anyone's, uh, with a no knock warrant and shoot anyone or kill anyone when they were sleeping? No, in okay. fact, the Chinese police aren't even armed. <laughs> they don't even have they don't yeah. have a gun. They don't have yeah. a taser. Uh, they have. They are completely unarmed. Uh, you. They actually help you. Like crazy things like Imagine that. that. What? No, yeah. that can't be true. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> I mean, uh, if you've seen videos of like how the Chinese police dis, uh, disarm people with a knife, they have like they just use riot shields to like hold them down for a second and then and then grab them. They won't even hurt somebody who's like literally trying to kill other people. So it's, it was it was very shocking to me because I had lived in the United States uh, almost my whole life uh, and I was terrified of the police and I had been uh, abused by the police multiple times because I had been I had been in and out of homelessness uh, as a teenager. So um yeah, uh, it was very surprising to me, but uh, the longer I was there, the more I realized like how well things worked. And, and then when I got back to the United States and started studying Marxism, and I realized the CPC was running uh, with a Marxist-Leninist lens, I was like, well, that explains it. Okay, so that's why everything was working so well. Like, one thing I noticed there was um, if there was like an accident, it was dealt with immediately. Like there's not somebody laying in the street waiting for like minutes or hours or anything for an ambulance to show up. They don't get charged. And people, like, like, people don't want an ambulance here. Like people are like, no, no, I'll take an Uber. Like I, I can't afford a 700, 800. I don't even know how much it is anymore. A thousand dollar ambulance bill. How absurd is this? Uh, uh, the bill for just an ambulance to go to a place that you're in dire need of uh, emergency care and yet it costs you money out of pocket if you don't have an insurance plan or maybe your insurance plan uh, requires an out-of-pocket expense. I mean, it sh this should be a public service, right? Oh, yeah. And that's how it was there. Like, things were dealt with immediately. Um, people were taken care of immediately. And I had never seen that before in the U.S. Um, I also noticed how quickly public infrastructure was fixed. While I was there, one of my closest friends uh, had a shop. Uh, a lot of people in China, they have some sort of small business or like they like sell things on the side. I guess owning the means of their own production or whatever. Um, like, but uh, like. yeah, he was a Christian and he was located right next to this uh, uh, cathedral. And the Chinese government was putting in a subway line there. Well, uh, instead Wait, like, of public like, transportation, Where, yeah, yeah, public transportation, you're not allowed to have that, that. right? Um, they put in this car. entire, they put in this entire subway line an entire subway line in under two years while I lived there. 
And instead of bulldozing the cathedral, they fixed it up and then put a stop next to the cathedral so that Christians could get off and go to church easily from the subway. And I was like, this is so fast. Like I would like visit my friend three weeks apart and they, the construction would be past the point where, where it was before. And this is coming from the Northern United States where I've, there's literally highways, sections of highways in my home city that are still under construction after like 15 to 20 years. So I was very confused seeing that. How can this be? But then I got back to the United States, started studying Marxism, and I was like, oh, Marxist-Leninism. It turns out if it's not for profit and the workers are running things, you can do things like this. You so know? I, I want to say that I've, through my studies, I'm more of a, I mean, I wish I could do some more world traveling, but just not that budget for a working class guy, at least not right now. But through my studies and I guess analyst, analysis of like news and whatever else, history, I've never met a government or a system of government or even a theory of government that I've liked. The only period of time that I tend to gravitate to, and I've actually just bought several books now on this time period, is the Spanish anarchist revolution in the 1930s, late 20s, early 30s, before it got crushed. Uh, but it, that was all about decentralization and... Um, you know, no gods, no masters kind of stuff. That's what I tend to gravitate towards. Okay. Well, I, I respect that. And I encourage you to visit China sometime. Um, it might surprise you. I was going to say about the whole decentralization, something that uh, you'll notice in China. There are autonomous regions dotting the entire country that are run by whoever decided they want an autonomous region. So like That's Tibet awesome. is an autonomous region. Yeah. Xinjiang autonomous region just in the area that I lived in Yunnan, which is just above Laos, uh, if you're looking on a map. Uh, there were three massive autonomous regions for indigenous minorities. So they completely decide everything that goes on in that area. So like, again, we talk about centralization, but if it's being centralized to the working class instead of the bourgeoisie, it looks kind of like decentralization. Now these words mean less, right? Because yeah. uh, really when the bourgeoisie is running something, it is more centralized than if the whole working class is running something, which in China is billion over a billion people, you know? So I, yeah, I definitely understand where you're coming from, but I'm just like, trying to encourage you to think about the definitions of these terms. I think sometimes these terms like centralization get used in a way that's meant to like fearmonger about socialism. So it's important to think, oh, well, in an authoritarian socialist society, who has the authority? Oh, it's the workers, which means you and me. So, <laughs> you know, it's just uh, good to think about those things. I'm all about real working class representation. I want normal people um, representing us. Like, I think, uh, I think I kind of want to get rid of the nation state. I'd like to dissolve it. I don't know if it'll ever be dissolved in our lifetime, but long-term I want to see government, um, and society organized around democratically structured workplaces or communities or some combination of both. Um, I want to get rid of standing armies. I want to get rid of nation states. I want to get rid of big, powerful bureaucracies, like at least what I saw in the Soviet union for my analysis, um, I will say that, like, 
I mean, China is a state capitalist society. My favorite template is maybe the Nordic countries, maybe the social democracies. I think they have a great welfare system in like Norway, you know, the Scandinavian countries, that sort of thing. Not perfect problems with every country. Again, as an anarchist, I've never met or read about a system of government that I've liked. But I mean, I see China as a state capitalist society. I know when I look at media... Um, there's pr- police brutality there, just like there's police brutality everywhere. Um, you mean the U.S. media? Sure. Oh, yeah. There's there's no doubt that they want to portray uh, our rivals in a certain way, but I don't think they're just making these videos up. I'm sure these, you know. Um, oh, they are. They are. But uh, what, let's go to, you know, like, I would, I mean, it's hard to say uh, that sort of thing. Like Like the Hong Kong thing, I know that there were... No, that was literally that was literally a CIA thing. Like that was a color revolution CIA thing. Like, yeah, Um, you cannot get your information about China from Western media because they are hell bent on destroying China's competition. They do not want a multipolar world where individual countries have a say over their natural resources. Uh, So I would encourage you before you make judgments about a country get information from people and sources within that country go there and see it for yourself if you can because you're not going to get an accurate reading of what is going on in a country that's been deemed an enemy of the united states from within the united states that is the unfortunate reality so well, just like cnn and fox news are going to present the, the news a certain way here i mean they're that China has a propaganda system in the media just like the United States does. So the the truth is not exactly in either of those two medias, but the truth is in the independent mind to think critically. So I think you can kind of look at uh, Chinese propaganda and Western propaganda and probably find um, maybe some some middle ground and some areas that are lies and misinformation. But, you know, the truth is probably not in either of those two representations. I think you'd have to maybe go to the country and visit and maybe talk to some people that have lived there and maybe look at some Western media stuff, look at some Chinese media stuff. Um, But yeah, I don't think that there's like one uh, source that can tell you the truth about anything. You know what I mean? Um, Well, I mean, I did go there. I did live there. I did listen to the news. And no, I didn't. I mean, propaganda. So yes, every place is propaganda because the word propaganda literally just means to like disseminate information about something. Public relations trying to put a nice positive spin on it. Yeah, we use that word in the United States to refer to like bad propaganda or like lying, but that isn't technically the definition of the word. So like, yes, it depends on how you read that that definition, whether you're using it colloquially in the United States or if you are uh, talking about just like disseminating information. In terms of disseminating information, yes, the Chinese news does that. I mean, but I did not find it to be lying the way that the U.S. media does. It seemed pretty straightforward. They just kind of told you what was going on. Like, again, the Chinese government is run by the CPC. The CPC has over 100 million members. And then on top of that, all of the other parties in China, which there's nine parties, they all contribute to all of the decisions made within China. uh, And individuals have an influence over said system. So, um, you know, it works very differently to have a news source that's run by everybody in the country, kind of, than 
the United States, which is a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, and we're basically hearing the opinions of three billionaires. It's just very different. In China, uh, they will openly let you know that they are uh, executing a billionaire that um, has committed massive amounts of corruption. I mean, they'll just give you the information from the case and then tell you what's going on. I mean, you never hear that stuff in the United States. They don't even prosecute uh, billionaires. They never admit when government officials are like charged with corruption unless it's some sort of a big scandal. But that happens regularly in China. There was like I was there when Xi Jinping did um, and the CPC did a like audit of all the members and they were trying to root out corruption. And yeah, it was it was a lot of people got in trouble. Um, so I've never heard of the United States doing an audit, <laughs> trying to figure out who's doing corruption, et cetera. So I just think it works very differently than most people imagine. And I, you know, I agree with you. You got to go there and see it for yourself because you're just not going to hear an accurate side if you're in the West, you know, I mean, the closest thing you can do is try to meet friends that live in China, uh, and talk to them. You know, I mean, meet people that are in the CPC. Two of my great friends are in the CPC um, and just talk to them about what they think. And I think that's the best way to learn, truly. And so, that goes for every country, not just China. I, I just I definitely oppose authoritarian states. And the way I see it, I think uh, China seems to be that, at least to me, and certainly the Soviet Union was certainly Nazi Germany was authoritarian. Like, for example, I oppose capital punishment in principle. I am in favor of defunding the police. And I actually think a society without police is possible. I definitely think a society without jail is possible. So, like, and then when you say things like billionaire, none of those things to me sound like a socialist ideal for a state, at least that I want to live in. So I want to get rid of, in just the last few sentences that you were talking about, I want to sure. get rid of capital punishment I definitely want to get rid of authoritarian policing and surveillance technology. Um, I definitely want to get rid of billionaires generally. I think that uh, billionaires yep. should not exist existentially. They should go away, uh, to be taxed out of existence. If, there, if, if, if it's possible for there to be billionaires, then certainly workers are not in control over the means of production because if that were the case, I believe – now here, I think there's a problem with a real pro problem with the profit motive – but the way I see it, at least in the short term, I want to see profits split up equally amongst the the workplace. Uh, I want it to be democratically managed and organized. And then I also want representation to be real working class rep representation. I read some stuff on like Germany. I think they have like ranked choice voting in a number of different political parties, which is cool. That's all fine. I don't like political parties in general. In principle, I'm not a, in any political party. Um, I think there's real problems with political parties. I'm all about the issues. Um, but what they do have is real working class representation. I think it's gotta be like, I don't, I'm just making up a number, but in the United States, it seems like the Senate Congress generally got a, another lawyer in the white house with, with Biden and Obama before that, um, just tons and tons of lawyers throughout all of, uh, all of Washington. Um, and then you got these lobbyists and these corporate law firms, I mean, it just seems like lawyers just completely run this country, and especially uh, corporate lawyers, corporate-style lawyers and lobbyists. And I think that's a really bad thing because, obviously, the legislation in this country has a pro-business slant. I read um, just different job descriptions of um, 
you know, legislators and um, representatives. I don't want leaders. I want working class representatives that represent the people. And in Germany, and obviously they're not great, but like and, and Angela Merkel um, is a like a PhD scientist or something like that. That's awesome. Uh, I think they have like a lot of teachers engineers, professors, um, you know, even like construction workers, I mean, artists, everyone should be involved in the governing of this country, um, not just lawyers. And I don't want to live in, under a system of a dictatorship of anyone. I don't care if it's the proletariat. I don't care if it's the bourgeoisie. I don't want to live in a dictatorship. I want to live in a democratic society. And again, I kind of want as loosely affiliated as possible with a very small, if anything, if anything, maybe a completely dissolved centralized state. I'm, I kind of like the, at least the, the framework of the European Union. And I think you can kind of maybe do that in the United States where, you know, you have like your 50 states. I, the United States is what I know best. I don't know China very well, but I mean, you can continue to talk about China. I'm, I'm learning quite a bit. But again, I, you know, problems with the billionaires and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that that, that has anything to do with socialism. But what I might want to see is like, you know, smaller centralized regions, autonomous regions. I think that's awesome. I've, I've read a little bit about that stuff. I think that's great. And then every once in a while, maybe these autonomous regions get together and vote on policy, but not this giant centralized powerful state with the military industrial complex that the United States has. Um, and I, yep. I think, you know, and then, you know, I guess we can kind of go into the, um, just the proxy war going on here, but I mean, it seems like the United States and NATO and the posturing is just frightening. We're, we've been on the verge of nuclear apocalypse since 1945 and the United States dropped not one, but two nuclear bombs. So in, in general, that's why I oppose a centralized authoritarian state, because if, if, so, if it's, if it's two conflicts between these two regions and they're both nuclear, um, able, it could end us all. The future of humanity and every living organism on it, maybe outside of you know microorganisms, you know. Yeah. So there's a couple things to respond to there. One is authoritarian is a useless term because authoritarian just means somebody has authority. That is necessary in a society, unfortunately, because of the fact that economic law merits it. There's an economic law called Law of Capital Centralization. This was developed by Marx. I highly encourage uh, anybody who wants a better understanding of this to read Marx's volume uh, one of Capital. If you're finding it too dense, uh, David Harvey on YouTube does a guided reading, which I found super helpful because I'm not an economist and I got Marx right here. is. Yes. Uh, so Marx goes into detail about law of capitalization, uh, centralization. So what that just basically means is capital central centralizes itself over time. So you cannot until you undo the laws of capitalism that cause this, you will not be able to reach a decentralized society. That's impossible. The, the capital will centralize in the hands of a small, wealthy elite over time, and you'll have problems. So that's why you temporarily have a dictatorship of the proletariat, which means the working class. That's meant to counter that over time. Uh, so every country has to go through its own way of getting to communism, which is what you're talking about with this decentralized society that has no state, uh, no police, etc. That's theory, a communist goal as theory. well. It never in practice, but in theory, I think that's what uh, Marx wanted. And I think a lot of left, I, 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 I think of myself as like a left Marxist, like a, a Marxist sure. that opposes centralized, the centralized state, an anti-statist anti 
uh, Marxist, right. if you will. I never call myself a Marxist, uh, but you know, I, I, I think a lot of what he said is, is right on. I'm, I'm, right, I'm well, right there with you on all kinds of stuff that he talked about. Yes, a lot of Marxists, uh, they would agree with you because that is the goal of communism, a classless, stateless, moneyless society, okay? Yep. Yep. Uh, the problem is you cannot do this overnight or you ha end up with what happened with the Soviet Union where the U.S. does a color revolution, they topple you, you're dead. Uh, you know, you have to be able to maintain this over time. And the way you maintain it over time is by uh, raising the material conditions of your people and maintaining a dictatorship of the proletariat. But this is a temporary thing. Socialism you, you and communism the are the same. You huh? had me on the first part, raising the living standards of everyone. I was all on board. But then you went back to the dictatorship, which I'm, I get it. I, I mean, these terms gotta, are propaganda. You just got to get over the, the fear of these terms because you've been told that they mean a certain thing when really they mean a variety of things. So I totally understand where you're coming from. I felt the same way. Uh, now that I've been a Marxist for five years, I, I don't care. <laughs> like, you know, I'm used to it. I, uh, I've read enough theory and I've read enough about these terms that I understand what they actually mean versus what I was told they mean. But it does take time. And I understand that you know, it's a little difficult to hear something like that and just like accept it. You don't need to like, it's fine. Um, but uh, whatever we want to call it, you need a government run by the people. They need to have total yes. control yes. Uh, over the bourgeoisie. These are the people in, in which wealth concentrates. Uh, you have to be able to take that from them and keep redistributing the wealth. So in China, the way that works is uh, a vast majority of all corporations in China are nationalized, so they belong to the people, uh, because in China it's considered that the state and the people are the same. Uh, and then any, uh, any company that is not nationalized has to pay exorbitant taxes to the Chinese people. And the way that that's materializing is people in China are doing very well. 850 million people were lifted out of absolute poverty. Um, when you're Not walking around there. in China, Not going to argue there, right on. Yep, yep. Yeah, like people are doing well. Like this infrastructure is like something that most Americans cannot possibly imagine. Like the roads are solid. Like there's people that uh, their jobs are to keep the city clean. And so, you know, they clean the, sh the streets and stuff. Um, and it, they just look nice, you know, like, not not like U.S. cities, which have potholes everywhere. You can barely drive your car without, like, going over a pothole and, like, worrying you just destroyed your freaking car. <laughs> well, here's what I okay. want to get off, though. I want to transition off of oh. – I want to transition away from cars and personalized well, vehicles. I want public transportation. I want high-speed rail. But there are people who will still need cars even in socialism. Like, so the, in China, you do not need a car. I did not have a car the entire time I was there. I could get, you can literally get where you're going faster by taking public transit. Many, most of which is now completely green. Like even when I was there, the taxi system in China was uh, all hydrogen vehicles uh, hydrogen cars, which was, I didn't even know what it was until they pulled over at a hydrogen like gas station. And then it looked like they took out something to refill balloons and into the side of the car and filled her up. I'd never seen anything like that. This is back in 2013 or something like that. Um, so you do not need a car. However, people will still want cars. Some people do need them like the disabled. 
you know, it's much easier to have like a disabled vehicle that is set for you than to try to flag down a taxi in a wheelchair and get where you're going. So like there will always be a small percentage of people who need them. But the way that China's doing things is to incentivize you to take public transit because it's way cheaper and way more convenient and way faster than having a personal vehicle. So therefore, the vast majority of people don't need one unless they want one for some reason, you know, um, with houses, they won't allow access number of houses. Your first house is tax free. Your second house is heavily taxed, but I you like can this. have one. Yeah, Third like house is taxed so high, basically no one does it. And you, there are restrictions and limitations on whether or not you can landlord it out because they want to maintain control of that system, not let it get like the United States where it's like right. everybody has an Airbnb and now no one has a house, <laughs> you know? No, totally. So, there's, so, hey, there's some, there's some, so first off, there's some good things with America too. Like I don't want to, I, sure. I don't want to bash America about everything. You know, I think it's easy to do, especially in terms of our foreign policy and our imperialism. But like, I think free speech uh, is is very, you know, it, it's 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 a definitely a a thing that's very strong here in the United States. I think we have some of the strongest free speech rights oh, in disagree. the world. I well, disagree I like that, with that. So, I like that um, it's not dictated directly from the government. Now, of course, like corporations, yes, it is. They own oh, the how so how so. Uh, you can literally get arrested. They ha There's a law that I was arrested for because I went to a protest that was very chill and they just started randomly arresting people and it's called uh, unlawful assembly and then disturbing the peace. Uh, if you talk out loud with more than two people anywhere, you can get both of these charges. It uh, doesn't matter what you were doing. It's completely up to the cop's discretion. Sure, they were not being blowing. disruptive. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's not free speech. That do, that shit doesn't happen in China. Like you don't get arrested for standing around at a protest in China. And yes, there are protests there every once in a while because I've seen some it's a normal online. society. <laughs> I've seen some videos online of some protesters getting pretty busted up by uh, some you know Chinese police officers. Maybe you was say that, that's propaganda. Was that in Hong Kong or was yes, that? It was. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So that that's a little bit different than the mainland. Um, they're. You know what happened in Hong Kong where it was ruled by the colonial British for like several decades? And I, I don't know just... the history of China too too well, to be honest with you. I know the Soviet Union okay. a lot better. But yeah, I, I just saw some videos and uh, so, made, made, made up my mind about it. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, sure there, I'm sure there's incidents of police violence there in every other country in the world. Although I did see in Iceland, I think only, I think only like one cop has fired a gun in 70 years or something crazy and in that case it was like an armed robbery or i read the story on it because i did a little podcast a solo pod but policing around the world um you know america very very violent lots of shootings and, and that kind of stuff so i love at least the idea of um you know police officers that are there for public safety that maybe are unarmed that can help right. um you know uh, get people to emergency services or, you know, protect someone in a d domestic violence incident, that sort of stuff, you know, I mean, but in general and long, long term, I like community policing. Like, I think that there sure. doesn't need to be, um, you know, armed officers. Like, I think uh, I was listening to something or reading something about like the original policing. Actually, I was talking to someone today. I have a podcast coming up next week. And he'd said, like, the first police in America was like, um, armed militias, you know, looking for escaped slaves, that sort of stuff. So I think in, in yep. the long run, I would like a, a society where we don't have police, or at least there's police, um, you know, community policing where members of the community take it in their, uh, 
uh, up with themselves like in a nonviolent way to make sure the community stays safe. Um, I don't think we right. need people walking around with body armor and assault weapons and shields and all that sort of thing. Uh, and right. I also think that the, the huge problem with just the crazy gun culture in America too, like obviously uh, these types of um, mass mass shootings and that kind of stuff doesn't happen any, anywhere else in the world. And yet we refuse, or at least the people in leadership positions in Washington refuse to do anything about it. And it's disgusting. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think the the long term goal is more of a community police thing. I, I would see that as being uh, something you'd have under communism, but it takes us a while to get there, of course, due to let's, a lot let's of capital talk there. centralization. Let's well, get I was going to I was going to explain something though before uh, okay. we move on. Um, this is why I brought up Hong Kong and asked if it was there. Um, Hong Kong was was stolen from China and ruled by the British for like 100 years. And China only recently started uh, trying to take it back because it's its own rightful territory. But the British still have some level of control there and the government still is to some degree influenced by the West. So that's why the policing in Hong Kong is drastically different from the rest of China. And same with Taiwan. Um, China's only recently started to like slowly try to retake what was stolen from it. Uh, but that context is really important because, you know, again, I brought up how the police were where I was living in uh, Kunming. They were unarmed, no taser, no body armor, nothing like that. There is SWAT for emergency situations like I don't know if you ever heard about the Kunming uh, train station massacre, but basically um, a bunch of CIA trained uh, people came in and started randomly attacking people at a train station in Kunming while I was living there. They did have to call SWAT for that situation. Something like uh, 50, like 30 to 50 Chinese people were killed and then uh, 250 injured um, by the attackers. So, um, so there will be SWAT called in for like an emergency situation like that. But other than that, you don't see... Uh, people like police holding guns and stuff like that. I also traveled to Laos, which is a socialist country. The police were the same there, uh, unarmed, uh, no body armor, no taser, nothing like that. Uh, and then I've heard it's the same in Vietnam. So I do think that these sorts of things are achievable before communism. Like, uh, you know, communism is like usually the term we use to describe that end stage, that goal that we have. That's what we mean when we say communist. This that's is not been reached. Goal. Right. It's not been reached. Right. right. Exactly. But uh, in the meantime, the first stages of communism are known as socialism. And it Fine. will vary for every single country what social socialism looks like, because you have to unravel your specific conditions in your specific country in order to get to that end goal of, of communism. So it depends on how it looks. But from what I've seen, yeah, you can totally do the no armed civilian police thing way earlier than most people realize and it's already happened in you know a country of 1.5 billion people you know and i have to keep referring to china because that's the society that i know the best you know that's the actually best, the place right. i've yeah that's the place i've lived the longest outside of the united states uh so you know it's the best example i have to draw from but yeah. um i did pass through laos and i've traveled all around uh asia so that's definitely helped a lot in terms of visualizing what things could look like you know let's go another 10 minutes on political systems and stuff like that and then i really want to finish with if it's okay with you some art philosophy of art and maybe some more of your background does that sound cool yeah that sounds great okay 
So uh, one thing I want to say is I think Hong Kong belongs to the people of Hong Kong and whatever government they want is the government that should be in power. So I don't think it's owned or anything like that. Like I have, I guess I have an issue with like collectivist rights. Uh, I, I am in favor of human rights for individuals I oppose corporations. I I oppose hierarchies. I oppose any system of illegitimate authority, power, domination, concentrated power and wealth. Um, I oppose billionaires in principle. I don't think that they should exist. I want a classless society. Um, But uh, I guess two things here. I want to define socialism. Maybe I'll tell you what I think it means. I think at the core, owners, uh, I guess workers control over the means of production. That's pretty much as simple as I see it. Workers have a say in the workplace, uh, and, and maybe they own it or whatever. Um, you know, maybe, and I, I, maybe we can talk about just in general property and profit. These are two interesting terms. Uh, you know, maybe a moneyless society is possible. I'm not so sure about that. I think it's possible, though. I mean, I definitely think it's possible, but I think there's probably going to be maybe some need for, you know, a means of exchange, but... Uh, so socialism, money, property, maybe we can define those terms or you could define those terms. And then my last thing, revolution, we're both in, we're both in, uh, agreement. We want big change, maybe revolution, you know, it, it depends on what you mean by it. But what I see for revolution, I want a nonviolent bottom up democratic revolution. And I don't think there's a need for violence in a revolution. Maybe you disagree. Uh, I know some Marxists do. But I think it's possible to have a nonviolent revolution, uh, a bottom-up revolution, a populist revolution, um, a working-class-led, you know, a proletariat revolution. And I think that the only reason there would be violence is the people in power want to use violence to maintain that power. But I think it's that's true- literally what Marx says. Yes, of course, I advocate for violent revolution, not because we want the violence, because but because the bourgeoisie will not give up what is owed to us willingly. Uh, I mean, they kill us en masse every day. They have zero qualms about letting hundreds of thousands of workers die on a yearly basis uh, just just so they can buy a bigger yacht next year. So, yeah, if you think those people are going to willy-nilly hand over. Probably not. No, they will not. They they've demonstrated time and time again they have no sense of empathy for us. And so we will we will need to take it. Unfortunately, many of us Marxists wish that was not the case, but it is. They will force us to violence uh, because they know no other way to uh, hold on to what they steal from us. And so. It seems like they weaponize the police, and, and in most cases, it seems like the police are class traitors. I, I do think that, um, you know, it would be a good thing, I think, if maybe some police uh, had some class consciousness, but the way I see it, uh, they're usually weaponized by the ruling class, and they're usually there to maintain disorder, not to preserve order, but to maintain disorder. In a capitalist society, yes, they absolutely are uh, serving the bourgeoisie. They're paid by the bourgeoisie. Uh, They do not work for us. And And often paid well. Often paid well. I think sometimes triple digit uh, six figure salaries in some of these bigger cities now. Yeah, there is some evidence that uh, a small percentage of those sorts of police will turn uh, on the bourgeoisie during a revolution and side with workers. But I definitely wouldn't count on that. (laughs) 
yeah. if it happens, it happens. But um, I'm guessing, uh, you know, they'll go to their graves defending like Walmart <laughs> from like poor people that need baby food. I feel so bad when I see these stories of like working class people putting their lives on the line. Like when someone goes in and, and, and maybe tries to steal from a business, I often tend to side with that person and, and, and give them the reason of reasonable doubt that they're probably in a really desperate situation and they probably need that food or that money and they can just have it. I can't believe when working class people put their lives on the line for a corporation to preserve whatever money is in the cash register. Like those people are so indoctrinated. Like, do you understand? Like, first off, that person probably needs whatever they're trying to steal. Uh, and, and it might be doing it for good reason. Maybe they got a baby at home. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not there to ask questions. You know, the way I see it, if you still see someone stealing food, no, you didn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And most the vast majority of people have no interest in risking like catching a felony to steal some food like they do not, you know, there's just zero help for those people in the United States and in many other Western countries. Yeah. And, you know, you you listed the Nordic model as liking it. Uh, Norway is literally run by a king. It's a monarchy. So, uh, I mean, they do a much better job of pretending like they've got a lid on things. But really, Norway sends uh, uh, soldiers to Iraq, to Iraq, to Iran, like anywhere that the United States beckons them to come, they go. And uh, Norway is propped up on oil wealth and colonization. So they keep things moderately okay for the people living in the country. Right. Yeah. That's what I was uh, trying to get at. Not their foreign policy. They they were within the capitalist system. And that capitalist system is run by the godfather, the Don, and that's the United States. At least, you know, that's the way I kind of see foreign policy and global politics is, you know, whoever has the biggest stick or the most powerful military leads, you know, it's not typically... The world isn't governed by international law or morality or, you know, human rights. It's usually by violence. Yeah. So unfortunately, um, unfortunately so, to the detriment of everyone. Yeah. And, you know, my, my grandparents actually came to the United States because my grandpa was a minister and there was no jobs for him and he couldn't feed his family. Uh, and so he had to leave Norway in search of some kind of work. And, you know, he uh, lived in pastors' houses uh, basically his entire life uh, in the United States. And uh, Norway won't accept any of us grandchildren signing up for visas because we're not direct relatives. It's so strict that even yeah. if your grandparents were citizens, you can't even visit. So they've got those countries locked down. They do not want any of us coming in. So what, what it's, about a- how about a global society without borders and nation states? What kind of what, what do you think about that? I think that could be wonderful. I think exactly. we'll have to reach communism before we'll be able to do something <laughs> like that, most likely. But then again, what do I know? You know, I'm living yeah. in a, a capitalist society that's you know doesn't give us a lot of room for creativity and imagination <laughs> since we're all just trying to survive. So maybe it's possible sooner than I even think. Maybe, before we go, maybe one more period on art. You had mentioned yep. you had some uh, family members that were like clergy uh, ministers. What what uh, role does religion play in your life? Zero. I am a atheist. I, uh, you know, I don't want to say uh, 
that like communism is a religion for me because it's not, but I consider the scientific method very central to how I think. I consider it very important. I'd say if I had to describe anything that's religious to me, it's my connection with nature um, because nature provides for us. Uh, We cannot live without the ecosystems that give us life. And so I think if we're going to give thanks to anybody, it should be, you know, uh, this earth and trying to respect it and take care of it for future generations, you know, so that it can be better tomorrow than it was when we were born. And other than that, you know, I just, uh, I, I think the universe is beautiful and read a lot about science and physics and stuff like that and i find it perfectly fulfilling like learning how incredibly complex the universe is and the world around us we're still discovering so much so i just had a physicist on uh last week it was was a fun time if i bring up the word god uh what does that mean to you is it intelligible or does it have any meaning to you what is god who is god does it even is it even intelligible yeah, um for me that word typically means like something associated re- with religion. The closest definition of God that I could have any sort of connection to comes from Spinoza. Oh, um, yeah. Check out yeah. this. I keep showing you books on my shelf. This is an audio only, but look what I got here. I just yeah, this. Yeah, go. I really I have a lot of respect for Spinoza. Um so Spinoza describes The church God did as, not. The church did not like Spinoza very much. Of course not. He was he went through so much more than any person should ever have to. But um yeah, he describes God as ev- like basically everything and nothing that exists. <laughs> and I like that. I, I like think that, that can too. work. Yeah. Uh however, um yeah, I guess that word just like typically means like religious stuff to me. So I don't, it doesn't really ring a lot for me. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't mean a lot to me either. I mean, maybe the universe is God or something on some grand scale, but uh, I'm agnostic. I don't think that human beings have the power to understand creation, you know, of the universe or right, our same, planet yeah. or our species or what life is all about. Although these questions are interesting um, as a philosopher for, for me to ponder. Um, so what's funny about my, like, views on religion and God now is I was actually raised in a super Christian home, uh, and I became an atheist through reading the Bible and finding so many inconsistencies. (laughs) So did many of us. Yeah, so did many of us, yeah. And I tried to ask, like, my youth group and stuff about it, and they threw me out and took away my books. You, and yeah. I was like, this makes no sense. Like, you cannot use uh, reason. you got to have faith, right? You can't use reason. You can't use your brain. Just, you know, just listen to the dogma. Take it in. This is God's yep. word. You, got, you must believe it or else. Or we'll, and they we'll were put you under me, house like, arrest, like Galileo. Yeah, and one of the books that they took away from me was literally called Conversations with God, and they were like, this is the devil's books, and like, I was like, what are you, like, it it literally is pro-God and stuff, and they were like, yeah, no, you need to have faith if you're questioning God like this, you need to really, you know, look at yourself and blah, 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 and I was just like, this is not making any sense, um, so I just read the Bible myself and went through it with a highlighter and uh, read it cover to cover, and I came out of it an, uh, an agnostic. I went on to reading other holy books, and then it dawned on me, oh, my God, everybody thinks that their own holy book is 100% correct. And I was like, statistically, this is impossible. 99% of people would have to be yeah. wrong. And I was like, okay, this is bull. 
yeah, I'm, I'm, and I became an atheist uh, after studying this stuff for about three years. Um, so yeah, I went the other direction than people were telling me I was supposed to go. <laughs> that's the way to be. That's that's when you know you're taking the right path. When people have a problem with your path and trying to get you to go in a different direction, then you must know, like, okay, I'm onto something. Yep. Yep, didn't, uh, didn't George Michaels, George Michael, George Michaels, I don't know if there's an S on there, and Limp Biscuit, they had something to say about faith, didn't they? You have no they idea might what have, I'm but about. I am too out of the loop <laughs> to know what they say, but I totally believe you. Somebody <laughs> might get that reference. It's a terrible attempt at a joke. All right, let's okay. transition here. It looks like we have uh, at least another 35 minutes or so. I don't know if we'll need all that, but let's just talk about art. Um, I have... Lots of questions. <laughs> Hopefully you have some answers for me. Uh, maybe let's go back to the murals, though. I mean, we took a little bit of a detour there with all that political stuff. I know we were going to get there. We're political people. We love this kind of stuff. But um, yeah. let's go to let's talk. Let's go back to your murals. What kind of stuff were you painting? I lived in Philadelphia for a time, and there's a lot of beautiful street art murals all over the city, especially in like kind of working class parts of town. And I think it's beautiful and awesome, and it really makes Philadelphia stand out. I love that kind of stuff. Street art, it's it's beautiful. Uh, I think it gets criminalized and called graffiti it's, you know, by by uh, you know, by, by the police and, you know, the ruling class and whatnot. But, you know, that I think that differentiates and makes uh, communities unique and I think it's awesome. Yeah, um I absolutely love murals. I I think that every city should have loads of them because who wants to stare at a gray cement wall when you can have like a beautiful you know mural created by an artist or multiple artists um i love them uh the sort of murals i was doing um so i was i started out assisting my mom uh she mainly got hired for like individuals houses the state fair uh, in our home state, and then um, schools, things like that. So she would just bring me on whenever a project was like too big for her or the deadline was going to be too soon and she needed help uh, getting it done. Um, so like the state fair was probably the biggest one because they have a bunch of like permanent facilities there. Uh, and so all of these different facilities basically have our art in them. Uh, everything from like the walls to the ceilings to like the garage doors. We basically did something every year for the state fair, which was really fun. And it's, it's an awesome opportunity because there's a very limited number of places that hire mural artists in the U S these days. Um, what kind then, of projects, uh, what kind of projects, themes, what kind of things were you painting in these murals? One of them was a circus. The The place that it's at is called like Coasters. So it's all the theme is all like fairs and circuses, especially in the uh, olden days and whatnot. So uh, we painted this whole like carnival scene along this entire wall and it continues up all the way to the ceiling. Uh, and we even painted friends of ours into the different like little people at this mural. So if you're like carefully looking, you'll find both of us painted into the mural, uh, friends of ours, people we cared about. Um, it was really fun. And then next door to that is um, 
Cafe Carib, uh, and those murals extend onto the ceiling. So one of the times that we were painting there, we were literally on scaffolding, like on our backs, painting the ceiling and paint like drips in your eyes and everything. <laughs> if you forget a brush down below, it's just the worst. You've got to go all the way back down the scaffolding and then get back up there. Um, and then, uh, because they're shut down for most of the year, every single year you have to come back and either repaint part of it or touch it up or whatever. So those are like probably the two main places. And then there's this, uh, school that we also painted at, uh, in like a rural area and it's for kids that don't fit in, uh, in public schools for whatever reason, whether it's like, uh, coming from a, you know, trauma background or a disability or, um, something like that. Uh, this school accepts those sorts of kids that need like extra help and attention. And so we painted uh, multiple like community areas of this school, which was really fun. Um, so that that sort of covers it, I guess. What about uh, how long does, does a mural typically take? Is this like a weekend project or like a long long term project? These are kind of large scale pieces of art but i think they seem to kind of go up quickly or or how does it kind of work uh well if it goes up quickly it's because you're you're sleeping there um both the school and the state fair uh, we oftentimes had to like stay at the facility or get there super early and paint late into the night. Like it depends on the kind of deadline you're working with. Like a lot of times they need it done within two to three weeks. And it's like, well, if I'm going to be there uh, two to three weeks, then, um, you know, we need to be getting there at five, six in the morning before sunrise. We'll be going home at, uh, one in the morning and, uh, we need full access to the facility so that we can be painting there all the time. Um, you know, you need a lot of coffee. <laughs> so I would say if you were working like a normal amount, which would be like six to eight hours a day, most of these jobs would take like a month, but wow. uh, you almost never get that kind of time because yeah. the, they figure out they need this done. And by the time they secure the funding and then the school's yeah. going to open or whatever, you really have like two to three weeks max and you just have to push through as best you can to get the job done on time. Yeah, well, I showed you. Um, I showed you my my. Uh, is it Das Capital? Is that was that what it's called? Yep. So yep. I showed you my my copy of Das Capital, but I like kind of reading sometimes. Um, maybe experts or philosophers or maybe Marxist theorists or whatever kind of read yeah. through it. So I, I like to read it, and then sometimes right now I'm doing a course with David Harvey, uh, Marx and Capital. So I find it um, pretty interesting. But I remember in the podcast which I'm doing right now. Not a Marxist, though. I'm an anarchist. Um, okay. The, uh, he said that the capitalists, what they try to do is um, they monopolize your time. And, you know, I'm from um, Pennsylvania. I said that in other podcasts. So I guess I'm, I'm okay with saying that. But uh, I remember, like, the homestead strikes, the steel mills and the robber barons, one of them, Andrew Carnegie. Uh, the, the workers were working, like, 10 or 12-hour days for – a couple dollars a week or something along those lines and lots of, I mean, steel mills, you know, especially turn of the yeah. century, Pittsburgh and, um, you know, uh, Northeast and Midwest factories, lots of, um, injuries and lots of danger. Um, and not to mention not great pay and, and long hours. And, um, and the, the Pinkertons, I guess it was like a private security force came in and just, uh, shot dead, 
a lot of these strikers, um, which were, of course, paid by the robber barons and Andrew Carnegie himself, which the history books, of course, write him down as some great uh, uh, philanthropist and humanitarian. Uh, but I'd rather uh, a working tax system than one that allows billionaires to kind of pick and choose what social projects they fund and allows them to set up bogus charities and uh, foundations, um, you know, again, so they can evade taxes. But anyways, I digress. Back to David Harvey and his interpretation of Marx and, and capital. Um, that they, they try to maximize your time. You know, there's always deadlines. There's always productivity. There's always, you know, we can't just work on this project because, you know, they got the funding and they have to open and, and that sort of thing. So let's kind of get into it. What about just being an artist or just being a worker generally in a capitalist society that revolves around profit and monopoly of your time, the majority of working hours for most people, you're working for someone else, not yourself. Uh, so many tasks we forget about at home and we can't get to them on the weekend because we're so tired from work. We want a couple of days to relax. We don't want to mow the grass and clean the house on our one or two days off. So what about, but maybe you're, uh, and I want to focus more on this podcast with art. What about being an artist in a capitalist society and what emphasis is there an art in a capitalist society? I mean, it's commoditized just like anything else, right? I mean, yeah, uh, it's very challenging to be an artist in a capitalist society. I, uh, It's definitely always been a challenge for my mom because, I mean, you have to do all the marketing. You can't just be an artist. Like, that's not a thing. You have to market. You have to conduct your own market research. You have to, I mean, everything has to be done yourself. You have to um, be really good at multiple types of social media. Um, you need to be able to post on social media constantly. Uh, stuff that, like, on average, not a lot of people can do all these things. So, like, you know, you're automatically at a disadvantage if you're, say, just a good painter, but you can't market yourself. Like, that's that's terrible. Um, you know, I would much prefer to be an artist in the DPRK where you, I would get a job as a people's artist. That's like the profession title. And you just paint whatever you want. And then the state gives you a salary and and your housing and your health care. You get all these things and you get to paint like i would really rather do that <laughs> than have to uh find customers for every individual painting among i mean basically like you know i'm a i'm a communist painter so i, I consider myself a, a people's painter i paint what i think the working class wants and needs to see um but working class people are starving you know, not a lot of us have money for art right now because we're all struggling. So, like, it's just this self-defeating cycle of all of us being broke together and, and passing around the same $20, basically, um, while yeah. we're all treading water and, Absolutely. like, drowning. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to get to. Like, even then, like, even let's say you're you have a salary from the state, you're probably still going to have some expectations, you know, producing art under external command instead of just producing maybe when you're inspired. Um, so, but yeah, what about, I mean, we're all living in the machine, you know, but um, like, well, I what, saw an artist uh, interviewed 
um, a, a, a people's artist from the DPRK interviewed, and he he said you don't have to. He said he comes in and he like meditates and then smokes and figures out what he wants to work on. And this guy specifically likes to paint uh, beautiful women, <laughs> so so he would find like pictures of working class ladies doing like jobs he considered a po- important and paint them because that's what he likes to paint. And so I was like, wow, this this guy, like, he can just, like, get paid to meditate? <laughs> I can't do – I don't even get paid for, like, vacation or breaks or anything. I don't charge for all the time it takes me to market or ship. All – my paintings may seem expensive. That's just the hourly labor. And I usually do free labor on every single painting because I'm like, okay, this is getting too detailed and too expensive. People aren't going to be able to afford this. Uh, meanwhile – this guy has full benefits and everything. So I didn't know that it was that good of a gig, but apparently it is. <laughs> and to me, that sounds amazing, especially compared to what we're dealing with uh, in the U.S., which is almost everybody has to quit art because you just can't swing it. There's just no way. Like, it's not you don't know when you're going to get paid. You don't know um, if you don't have energy to market this week. You're not no one's going to see your, your stuff. You know, I mean, um, so that was where I was coming from on that. I just I saw that interview and it was it was uh, it opened my eyes a bit. We'll say. Are you so are you an artist full time or do you have to do like a side gig as well as, you know, maybe many artists around the world have to do or especially these ones as those artists living in America? Or are you able to kind of dedicate all of your productive resources to being an artist? So, um, long story short, I'm a, I'm a refugee from the United States that fled to Mexico. Uh, I fled because, uh, my partner and I got long COVID. Um, we were hit extremely hard by COVID, uh, and we couldn't work because we were too sick and we couldn't access healthcare and we'd both been homeless before and we didn't have really any savings and so we knew it was either use what we have left and flee and stay housed or stay and end up in on the street again with two elderly animals and uh our other dog and so uh we left very quickly once we figured out how dire our situation was i was a trilingual interpreter i speak both uh spanish and mandarin Um, and I simply could not do that job with long COVID. There's absolutely no way I couldn't even paint for a couple months. And, uh, throughout the last, I want to say two years prior to that, I had been working overtime at that job and then also painting on the side. Um, once I got long COVID, I had vertigo for a year, uh, so, which made walking difficult. It definitely made it impossible to interpret Mandarin medical terminology. And uh, I didn't have any other source of income except art. So I was basically forced into doing this full time. Obviously, I love art and I love doing it. And so there are definitely worse fates, uh, but it's definitely got its challenges. And the only reason I'm doing this is because it's the only way that I could make money short term um, with long COVID. Uh, Since living in Mexico, they have a much more solid uh, 
like public health care system. Well, they have a public health care system. Yeah, the United States does not have a health care system as a scandal. Yeah. So just having one helps a lot. But uh, they have free public health care clinics and hospitals around uh, in every city, um, which keeps sort of the more private practices in check. Because if you can't afford it, you, you, you can just go to the public stuff and be seen for free. You might have to wait a little bit longer, but you'll still be seen. Uh, so since coming here, we've been able to get uh, a lot of the treatment that we needed and have recovered from long COVID much more so. Um, I'm hoping to continue doing art only because it is very exhausting. And I know that uh, if I work another job, the chances I'll be able to keep painting are low, but it is not easy. Um, It's, you know, we're definitely eating a lot of soup, (laughs) just trying to get by. Um, Like many of us are just trying to get by, right? That's what I I think I've said on Twitter before. The American dream uh, is basically, it's no longer, it's basically been replaced with lower expectations and the hope of just getting by. A lot of people are just okay with getting by at this point. Yeah. I mean, and you know, we're also happy to get by because there's been times where we haven't been getting by. So, you know, I, I can't complain too much, but um, you know, we have our challenges and uh, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to figure something out uh, to keep it going instead of needing to go back to, like interpreting or something like that because it's very demanding um and the the pay right now and the working conditions for interpreters is horrendous in the united states um it's horrendous so uh, we a lot of interpreters are making less than like walmart managers right now not to say that walmart managers are bad or that it's not a valuable job or anything like that i'm just saying yeah, it's tough to live as an interpreter when you're making $14 an hour. And I have a friend who's a, a manager at Walmart, and she was having an easier time paying her bills <laughs> than, than I was. So it's like, yeah, it's horrible. It sucks. So let's get, right we now. got maybe 20 minutes, a little bit less than that. At the yeah. heart of Necessary Illusions, is it's a philosophy podcast. It's a podcast about ideas. What is art? to you what what is art exactly can you define it uh, i've been looking up some stuff today uh this is definitely not my area of expertise uh but i've studied a, a little bit um and i still don't really know what art is exactly what is art um i mean i think it's a mode of human self-expression putting that uh self-expression and those thoughts into some sort of a material form so you can communicate it with other people but I don't know what the formal definition is at all. That's just there's, so I've been what reading, it is researching this a little bit. Yeah, there's no formal consensus, and it seems like art has been around almost as long as human beings have been around. We've been expressing ourselves from maybe the time that we've been able to communicate um, with others. Uh, it seems like there was uh, maybe between like a hundred thousand and seventy-five thousand years ago around the same time that we also got the ability for language, it might seem that there was just this creative um, boom uh, kind of with art and cave drawings and all all sorts of different stuff. I'm no anthropologist, but it seems as though that, yeah, uh, art and and human beings and and, and just the way we've been expressing ourselves, um, we've been doing it a long, long period of time. And, and obviously, you know, our mediums and the way we do it um, have changed, but it seems like it's always been a very important um, component of 
being human, you know, uh, art. Yeah. Oh, I, I very much agree with that. I think, um, it's essential. I mean, we have a lot of thoughts and feelings like as mortal creatures in a very complicated universe. And we have to try to like have a conversation about that and express ourselves. Otherwise it feels very overwhelming. So I think it's a great way to like let it out of the bottle for lack of a better term. Do you think we're the only species that does art? think there's other species on the planet that does art or is capable of art or maybe we don't even understand it if there if there is i I was just thinking about this as i was kind of talking well uh, i've actually researched yes this and yes other animals do do art if you teach them like just the basics on how to hold a brush and stuff elephants do art oh yeah Uh, they'll actually yeah yeah if you give them a brush uh one of the first things that they'll paint is other elephants which is really fascinating because They like to paint elephants and flowers, which uh, this is also something humans started painting as early as they could. They started painting each other and like humans hunting and, and things like that. So I just think that's really fascinating. I do believe dolphins also um, also paint if you give them a brush. Um, but it's harder to test this on dolphins because they have to leave the water to do it. Um Whereas, like, an elephant obviously is already, like, a land mammal. So, easier to hand them a brush than a dolphin. <laughs> no doubt. But I've seen yeah. it done, yeah. Yeah, human beings are able to manipulate our environment very well. And that seems to be, you know, maybe one of our strengths in producing art. So, I mean, I'm looking at this the Western tradition and, and forms of art. Uh, in terms of visual art, we have painting, sculpture, architecture. But there's also performance art, theater, dance. There's also literature, music film uh and i think it probably goes on and on but it seems like um your favorite medium is that what i would call it painting uh that's kind of your area and maybe uh you could talk about maybe um your inspirations um the style that you use and uh your works are beautiful very colorful and they seem to depict working class life so do you want to maybe go to just general your paintings and and kind of what you try to portray and maybe even your inspirations uh sure yeah um yeah painting is currently my uh preferred medium i do also dabble in sculpture and drawing but again i just find if i'm trying to create a quick a quicker uh expression or or a piece um i find that painting is the fastest way for me to do that um my style i guess i would say it varies uh i kind of uh i kind of combine impressionism realism and surrealism to a degree depending on how you define define these terms can we define Um, some of these terms Impressionism is like when you think of Van Gogh or Monet, so you're using these big brush strokes to kind of quickly create uh, an image with a lot of texture, um, sort of defies uh, the realist standard. Realism is when you're painting exactly what you can see as close to that as possible. And surrealism, um, there's a formal definition uh, for for what surrealism is. Um, I would just describe it for me as uh containing elements of realism and sort of elements of like fantasy or 
uh, less real sort of material. Like I'll take a realistic image, but it'll have highly saturated colors. Uh, it will have uh, things in it that don't exist that I can't see, you know, things like that. So, but it depends on how you define surrealism. So I was sure. actually looking this up here and luckily I wrote it down. Became the movement go. in the 20th century's uh, famous artists like Salvador Dali, combining abstract concepts with semi-realistic objects, but in a twisted or morphed in unusual way, can be Ill illogical and dreamlike. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, I fit the formal definition if that's what we're going with, yeah, <laughs> although my work looks nothing like Dali's, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's the, the picture it showed on the internet way. was that clock, the clocks, I don't know what picture it's like a famous the melting clock yeah the yep. melting clocks that's it that's the one that showed yeah yep yep so it, i guess that's a very varied school of art but i would say that that my art is involved with that for sure so you're trying to maybe pick out some realistic aspects but then make it like a twisted and i think like your color schemes and that sort of thing like that was one of the things i was reading is they're not exactly real like you know these types of artists tend to you know, use vivid colors to kind of, you know, stand out, but it's not exactly like um, maybe the reality that we're used to. Yep. Yep. That's definitely something I do. I, I've established that I most likely do see the world a bit brighter and more saturated ah. than uh, other people. I'm not sure. I like did some online tests with a computer that's R RBG accurate uh, and it confirmed what I think, but um, you know, haven't spoken to an ophthalmologist about it, but that might explain it. Uh, but I do see things quite brightly, so I try to portray what I'm seeing uh, to people, um, and that's not always totally realistic, you know, uh, as far as others are concerned. But um, I definitely do a lot of sci-fi sort of images. Um, I do a lot of landscapes, and the reason I do those is, A, I feel that a lot of media under capitalism focuses on dystopian futures, uh, which I disagree with showing all the time, because if a lot of these dystopian futures imagine that, oh, this is like if capitalism goes on another 50 to 100 years, what then? Well, uh, we won't be alive if, if that's what happens. Capitalism is not capable of you know, solving things for the social good like socialism is. So... Without socialism, we won't be able to solve climate change. We'll likely all be dead. <laughs> so yeah. I think if uh, if we're talking about a future that's 50 to 100 years out, it will have to be a socialist one. Because if we're to survive, to, to solve things like climate change or at least uh, deal with it as it comes, uh, the workers are going to have to be in charge. They're the ones that are going to have to have authority. And uh, in that case, it would be quite a beautiful future. So I try to show that future because I think I think we've all seen enough of like the cyberpunk, like, oh, there's no trees somehow. Yeah, yeah. And there's still dystopia. air. That's dystopia. Yeah, like it doesn't make sense. Like I if want there's trees no trees and mountains and nature. I don't want the cyberpunk stuff. Yeah. Either. Yeah. I mean, there wouldn't be any air. There would be wildfires everywhere. everywhere there wouldn't be right. water. I, it's not a thing. So, so, yeah, I try to focus on themes like, well, you know, if we're working towards the social good, maybe we would want to develop like ships where you could farm. You would need how would gravity work? Well, uh, it, the current thinking is it would have to be a rotating orbital ship 
and you'd have to use the uh, force of the spinning to like simulate gravity. So I'm like, well, what would that look like? Let's paint that, you know? Right now I'm doing a uh, oil painting um, where basically drone, uh, like drone tech has been scaled up massively to where you can build a small town on one of these giant drones. Uh, and cause I think it would be really cool. I mean, we need more, building space uh so that we don't disrupt ecosystems what if there is a way to do that in the in the sky i don't know it's a fun thought so i have been thinking through how you could possibly scale this up and how that would look and now i'm painting it um so yeah i really love that i i switch between the sci-fi sort of theme and then landscapes because um a lot of the natural areas that are very important to me, sacred, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, are dying. The uh, commons. Going we got to protect the commons. We must protect yeah. them. They belong to everyone. Yeah. There. And so, um, in a way, the landscapes are a protest of climate change and capitalism. Because if we want these places to be protected and and secured, uh, we will have to do something to to, to protect them ourselves. Uh, and so it's like a call to action. It's, you know, meant to say, uh, if you want this, you have to protect it and we need to do something or we will lose this. And yeah, I think that's really important right now. Yeah. I think there's a lot of nonsense about, you know, the billionaire space race and going to Mars to terraform it, but we have a great planet here and I think it would be a whole lot easier to save our planet that we currently live in than it would be to terraform some far off distant planet. And I think everyone should understand that if these billionaires ever get there, first off, I hope it's a one way ticket, but second off, they're not taking us with us anyway. You know what I mean? So we're, we're staying here. The, the eight billion yeah. or so, you know, this is our planet. And I had a physicist on here. There's almost no chance we're getting out of this uh, solar system, let alone our galaxy. So uh, I think uh, let's go ahead and sit on in here, get get tight, get comfortable. We're not going anywhere anytime soon. This is our planet. Right. And this is where we're going to be. Yep. I mean, uh, billionaires can't even plan their way out of a paper bag. Look at uh, what Elon Musk is doing to, yeah. to Twitter, for oh, for God's gosh. sake. Let's talk so about that. Bad. What is he doing with Twitter? I saw you said uh, you were going to leave Twitter if he makes the, the – well, you're unable to block people. Why would – I mean, if we don't – if people are harassing us, we should be able to block them, right? What's this, what's this idiot doing with Twitter? Hey, why, why did you um, – ex-social? I, get out of here with that crap. What, yeah. are you, what are you talking about here? Ex-social? He's, like, he's, a one, he's got one idea. He's going to name – he's going to buy into these companies, take the credit for them, and then put X on it and be like, oh, what a – and people slurp it up like, oh, my gosh, he's business genius. You know, he's going to open up a supermarket called X-Groceries. X you know what I mean? Give me a break. This guy's a, this guy's a one-trick pony. I'm tired of his act. Yeah, I hear that. Um, so what he is is basically like decades worth of concentrated wealth in the hands of like six people just over time. His emerald mines, him. right? His his family owned these these precious gem mines in the in the apartheid state of uh, South Africa, right? Yep, and it used slave labor and all that, and they made their wealth there. And you know, the a lot of people think that these rich people are smart. They are not. Uh, you know, uh, they pay their way through school. They pay people to do their tests and homework. They are surrounded by yes men who tell them all their ideas are good. They never face any consequences for anything they do. So these people, a lot of times, like if you talk to servers who 
work in wealthy restaurants, they will confirm for you that these are not smart people. Like they, I don't know. I, I like, it's not like they couldn't be, but just when you're insulated by wealth for that long, like you forget basic things like how to open a door or, um, you know, how to use a fork. Uh, my partner was a, uh, server in a nice restaurant. They could definitely tell y'all some stories. <laughs> um, but uh, Elon Musk is basically that. <clears throat> and he's been making changes to Twitter that are just on a whim. And he fired absolutely everyone who told him that anything he was doing was a bad idea. And yeah, yeah they don't want to be challenged. They don't want democratic participation. They don't want to be challenged. They just want yes men to tell them uh, to confirm their bias that they are brilliant and everything they do is a great idea. Yeah, and everyone in their circles is either paid by them or makes the same amount of money as them. They don't like to hang out with like the pores. So class uh, consciousness, solidarity. Yeah, uh, they don't that, know about any need. of that. They they don't even understand what a real friend is in a lot of cases. So, um, yeah, uh, the app is like completely losing all its income. Uh, advertisers just keep dropping out and. Uh, now he's saying that he's going to remove all headlines from every article so that, that all there is is the lead image. Uh, and I just saw an article where advertisers are like against it. And he's like, he doesn't care. He literally was like, yeah, this is coming from me. This is a good idea. Everyone's like, no, it's not, man. This is a bad idea. But he doesn't care. He's like rich. He can do whatever he wants. Even if he like completely crashes Twitter, like it won't even it won't even dent his like net worth. So. Um, yeah, bad idea to have a society run by these people. It's definitely not going well. <laughs> if you like look around you and the results, uh, it's it's not going well. So, yeah, but it sucks when your main like way of selling art, for example, is on a site like that because there's no alternatives right now. They're all really bad. TikTok. Uh, ever since the United States forced like its own regulatory group to manage western tiktok it's like a right-wing group from israel or something and it's been terrible on there ever since uh instagram and facebook are run by meta we know how they are like there's nowhere to go it's it's just all bad so yeah i have uh, i have gotten on um blue sky and it seems pretty chill a lot of a lot of lefties yeah. on there so i dig it um it's, it's working some of the kinks out and whatnot but it's yeah, I like it. I mean, I'll probably stay on that one. I probably, you know, if Twitter ever crashes and burns, at least we'll, we'll have that one. And, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be new ones that will pop up too. But, you know, the same people, whether or not it's the names might change, but it's the same class of people that own and, you know, kind of make the decisions for all these social media platforms. So outside, let's do, let's do a little rapid fire, some quick fire questions here to end with. Outside of painting, do you have any other uh, forms of artistic expression and outlets for your creativity? Uh, yeah, I uh, do music. I sing. I play violin, piano, guitar. I don't do it as much as I wish I could because I'm currently putting so much into um, visual art. But uh, every once in a while, I'll update my YouTube uh, channel, which is at Arxy Marxist, um, with... Uh, classical music or um pieces that i've written or things like that so 
I think um, you had maybe mentioned this, but where do you get your inspiration? Did you say maybe from like nature and um, you know what, where where do you get where do you get your creativity and inspiration for your projects? Uh, yes, definitely nature, uh, video games. I'm I I firmly believe that video games are an art form, and so I find a lot of inspiration from that, as well as other media. Um, you know, old movies. Um, Star Trek, <laughs> things like that. So quite quite a lot. Also, my family, uh, my two pups and my partner, they contribute a lot to inspiration as well. Who won the space race? The Soviet Union. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Was the moon landing fate? No. Um, favorite music? Uh, you said you played some music. What kind of music are you into? Do you have any favorite bands, music, genres? My favorite uh, genre of music is classical and folk music. I would say that my favorite composers are Mozart and uh, uh, Joseph Ballon. He is a fascinating person, by the way. Look into him. Um, he I love Mozart. Was a- I got to check out this other person. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Ballon. He was a uh, leader in both the French and the uh, Haitian Revolution. He led all black regiments and just just an incredible person all around. So those are my two favorite composers. And then for folk music, Phil Oaks. Look up Phil Oaks. Uh, He was Bob Dylan's friend, um, but I believe a better guitarist and vocalist and writer than Dylan by a lot. Um, but he wrote about like, you know, true anti-war songs. He played at all sorts of rallies. Um, so he was like followed around by the FBI and harassed and stuff and ended up dying at 35 via suicide. So um, a, an incredible person with wonderful music that not enough of us know about. Uh, you've t- talked and mentioned a lot of talents, definitely a creative person. Do you have a hidden talent you haven't told us about? Hmm. Probably. <laughs> I mean, I, cooking might be one. Okay. Um, I absolutely love to cook. Another art form, in my opinion. Um, I'm a pretty selective eater. I really like bright colors and, and flavors and stuff, just like my art. So I've taught myself to cook Chinese cuisine from all over China, Thai food, Indian food. Uh, I've been learning Mexican cuisine and Yucatecan uh, cuisine as I've been here living in Mexico and Yucatan. Uh, So I love that. And it's always a fun project because there's always something new to learn, always some new recipe, um, new way to mix things that you didn't think of that is delicious. (laughs) Do you have a favorite artist? Hmm. Good question. Or, or maybe a favorite piece of art, or you know, maybe you could throw some names or some works out there that you might like. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious from my art that I'm a big fan of Van Gogh. Um, I definitely love sort of his working class story as a working class artist, um, and then I love uh, how he used massive brush strokes and swirls i always loved to paint swirls um but starry night definitely had an effect on me and i have a a lot of respect for him to this day bob ross too i he taught me some uh, tips and tricks to make oil painting go faster 
that I had already known from mural painting, but I had just never thought to apply them to like a smaller canvas. And so seeing him use like a three inch brush on a small canvas, I was like, this is genius. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. So it's, yeah, he's permanently he's like a cool guy. I don't think anyone that. says can say anything bad about uh, Bob yeah. Ross. Do you have a useless but maybe interesting factoid? Oh, man. Um, I'm sure you have tons. I do. I know that's I'm putting the you problem. on the spot. <laughs> I have so many. Um, let's come back to that one because I'm going to need to think. Favorite book or author or authors, maybe not named Karl Marx. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, definitely Lenin, State and Revolution. I. Some about how Lenin writes very simply and to the point, but he's also like basically roasting like other people the entire time. Uh, I, I love uh, Lenin's work. Um, but as for something that's more uh, like fantasy-ish, I definitely really liked the first Game of Thrones book a lot. So George Martin, right? Is his name? I don't know. I don't watch that stuff. <laughs> oh, God. I better be right or everybody's going to be right. I think you're right, though. Uh, <laughs> I got a few more questions. Um, what do you hate most about capitalism? Um, the lost potential. Um, I think that there's so many working class people that are so Hell incredibly yeah. talented, that have incredible ideas that could completely change how we live in a society and how we interact. And they just completely go uh, unused or uh, whatever, because people are just trying to survive. They can't possibly develop these talents that they have. And that's heartbreaking to me. When will the revolution take place? Um, I'm going to guess in the next, uh, 10 to 20 years because of the fact that I think climate change is going to make conditions, material conditions so bad, uh, and the collapse of the United States and the U S dollar will be so bad that people will no longer be able to feed themselves. And that's typically the tipping point, sadly. So I think, uh, inevitably we're going to see a massive collapse. I do think there will first be a fascist revolution, uh -oh. but I think that, uh -oh. no, I do. And the United States is going to do everything it can to, uh, to clamp down on the working class. And they've been investing heavily in the tech to do that, to just be a brute force, uh, uh, clamp down on people. But I do think that will be the part of the incentive and the spark that, that forces the uh, working class to stand up and fight back against fascism fully. Like, I, I could completely be wrong, but like, that's just the way I see the wind blowing um, in the United States because it's like, it's getting really bad. It's just getting really bad. You know, we've talked to multiple people in our own city who are also refugees from the United States. So if, if this is uh, how many we know of now, there must be many, many, many thousands more that have already left for similar circumstances. You said you like sci-fi. Do you have some sci-fi books, some sci-fi authors, perhaps some sci-fi movies that you like? I do. Um, so I really like uh, Bioshock Infinite, a uh, really cool video game that kind of is like an alternate sort of, um, not cyberpunk, steampunk uh, 
dystopia that's loosely based on the history of the United States and includes criticisms of religion and colonization and things like that that were really cleverly hidden in the game. Um, so it's just kind of like a fun one. Uh, Atomic Heart, uh, I think if you play the intro to Atomic Heart, you'll definitely see where some of the inspiration for the painting that I'm currently working on came from. Um, as for uh, media or like movies, I really like Star Wars, the original trilogy. I really, I'm starting to watch the um, original Star Trek series, and I think that's really fun. Some of them are are very wacky, <laughs> but I like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. So for sure. I think those are it's fun. those are yeah. I think those are a good place to start. Um, are we alone in the universe? No, I don't think so. Statistically, I think there's definitely other life. It's just probably really freaking far away. You believe in aliens? Yeah. You think they've been here? No. Unlikely. What do you think they're doing in Area 51? I think that's just like a U.S. government like military spot. I think they're probably doing shady shit, but just the normal shady stuff that the U.S. government does, which is horrific, but... You know, like bio labs or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> Probably. that's my guess. Okay, and um, let's go back to your useless factoid. And then I got one last question. Do you have that useless factoid, or are you gonna pass? Uh, nope, I got one. Uh, the spring peeper is a amazing frog in North America that sounds like sleigh bells when you hear them oh. singing in the spring, and they are in danger right now because their pond habitats are threatened so if you are ever in the northern united states and you hear the sound of sleigh bells in the springtime it's likely a whole bunch of spring peepers singing okay i still have that one question but i thought of this one i wanted to ask you maybe it's more of a statement is nature an artist i would say yes i mean i think that art is usually more like a term for self-expression from a creature that's directed in some way but at the same time there are places i've been in nature that definitely feel and look like art to me and you know um who's to say that a tree can't express itself in some way or form i don't know <laughs> so <laughs> no, yeah definitely uh i like the uh, i think i heard a theory like everything is conscious like all nature and reality and maybe the quantum physics of it and quantum, quantum physics of consciousness uh it's possible i think the the world is and the universe certainly is very very complicated let me get to one question i also forgot to ask you then i got one last question but what uh what's the utility of art what what does it offer society um, it can cause material change in the people who view it. The brain is a um, is a material thing that we have observed scientifically changing itself based on ex, ex, uh, external input. Uh, and art is totally capable of creating physical change in the human mind. So, like, it goes beyond just saying, like, oh, it can change you, you know? No, like, it really can, though. It really can on a fundamental level. And so I think it's really important to put a lot of thought and, um, and time into the art that we create because it really will affect the people who interact with it, whatever your art form, whether it's music, uh, visual art, you know, sculpture, uh, whatever. So I think it's essential. And um, we find that 
in revolutionary times, there's like a splurge of art. Like lots of people start creating and I've been seeing that recently. It seems like a lot of folks are starting to like uh, create to kind of comprehend what's going on around them. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, that could be a sign. (laughs) I'm hopeful too. I know yeah. that a better society is possible. I am very hopeful too. I, I want to remain optimistic. Sometimes it's challenging, but we're uh, solidarity, you know, working class consciousness, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm hopeful that a better society is possible. And I see some change happening right now. I see some change brewing. And I, I think, again, a better society is possible. We have to fight for what we deserve. Uh, last question here. The, I always like to end with this one. Uh, the meaning of life. What's the meaning of life? Whatever you make it. Um, you. What's it to just, you? Uh, my purpose is to create create art that encourages revolution and a change to socialism. Uh, I want people to realize how beautiful the future could be how wonderful the things that we have in nature are and how everyone could have what they need and use that information to take what's rightfully theirs. Um, So I hope that people take those messages away when they see my art. I almost forgot to ask this and then we're going to wrap it up. You had a Chomsky story, right? That's my favorite author, my favorite philosopher. Uh, You had met Chomsky, replied to an email, and went and even did a guest lecture. You want to just talk briefly about that? That's pretty cool. Yeah. um, Unfortunately, he was ill uh, the day that I gave the uh, lecture. But yes, I I gave a guest lecture for um, one of his courses on climate change. the course is very focused on like, oh, what can we do to solve this? And the connection that I wanted to make for people is what the real cause is of climate change. It is capitalism. It's a it's a system of infinite growth and infinite profit on a planet that has finite, you know, finite everything, finite resources, finite profit, all that. So um, I wanted people to understand that capitalism is antithetical to a healthy climate and um, sort of plant that seed in their heads so they could maybe take away with uh, the understanding that you can't just like will this system away. It's going to take work. It's going to be challenging, potentially dangerous, but we have to if we want to protect the climate and protect our planet. It's an uphill battle, but we don't have a choice. The tipping point is near, and I hope we haven't passed it yet on that climate crisis. Yeah, I hope so. It's we we won't know, you know. So it looks bad. As as, Everything I read, it looks bad, and it's getting worse, unfortunately. Yeah, it does. But as long as we're alive, we can still fight, and yep. we should. We shouldn't go go willingly, you know. I'm packing up my papers here. This was an awesome conversation. I had a great time. I learned so much. So artsy Marxist, uh, where can people find you and connect uh, if they liked what you what they heard tonight? Uh, and maybe you can talk about some of the projects and some of the things you're working on right now. Yeah. Um, so uh, you can find my work at artsymarxist.pixels.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at artsymarxist with a one replacing the I because I've been suspended like eight times or something like that. Um, so I have to keep coming up with ways to say artsymarxist. Censorship. Uh, Uh-oh. Censorship. Yeah, they, you know, it's not surprising that sites run by basically neo-fascists don't like a communist artist. I shouldn't be surprised, but, um, but yeah, I'm still here. Uh, you know, I'll be as long as I can. Uh, and then I'm on uh, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch. 
uh, all artsy Marxist something or other. Uh, Twitch, it's at artsy underscore Marxist. And I, I stream uh, live art and lo-fi music uh, every Friday and Sunday around midnight. Uh, it's just meant to be a very relaxing. We don't like debate or anything like that. It's just literally we come together and enjoy relaxing to some art and music. So I think we all are under enough stress these days that the last thing you need is me talking at you. <laughs> so, so yeah, come and join me and I'd love to see anybody there. Love the lo-fi music. And uh, thank you so much for bringing uh, so much knowledge, a wealth of knowledge tonight. And just appreciate, you know, kind of picking your brain a little bit and learning about you, learning about art and learning about maybe our reality and, you know, our little place in this planet that we must save and work together. Otherwise, uh, it'll be the death of us all, this climate crisis. Absolutely. It's thank, been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Artsy Marxist. I really appreciate your time. You were so generous. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Necessary Illusions. I want to thank my special guest, Artsy Marxist, for a great discussion. I learned quite a bit during our conversation, which touched on art, politics, philosophy, climate change, the education system, and revolution. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.